So, last official, I think, Bible study of the year at this church. Sometimes people go to different things, but it's hard to leave Nahum. It's like not your favorite book now. But I just started it, and we're going to continue in it. Um, well, we're going to continue talking about it. I don't know if I'll get through any of it again. But Nahum, and yes, I'll give you time to find it. <laughs> Table of contents comes in handy, even for people that read the Bible a lot. So last time, we kind of just did an introduction and talked about the history, biblically, of it and uh, the relevance that it might have in learning God's character in it. And uh, just sometimes I read a lot of scripture. Sometimes I read historical things, and I don't want to make you guys feel uneducated that I need to do that, but I was uneducated and I needed to do it. And the Bible says that we're all like men or like people. And sometimes knowing the background of things fills in a lot of gaps and uh, it, it comes in handy. So why would God be upset with these people? And if you've read Nahum or were here last time I started this book, he's upset and uh, he's he does something about it. And we talked about, you know, as great as God's love is, uh, his anger has to be the same because they're motivated by the same, the same thing. So uh, Nahum, just to say I read it, we're going to end up on a bunch of places, and one of them is Acts, and one of them is talking about somebody that said that he spoke and taught the scriptures. I'm thinking, okay, I'm not the only one. <laughs> I talk. Sometimes I talk and sometimes I teach, but hopefully all of it's teaching. Um, but the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. So again, we don't know where Elkash is. Uh, there's not much that we do know about him. If this book wasn't written, we never would have heard of Elkash or um, Nahum, but other than Capernaum means the city of Nahum, so we believe that is a region around where he's from. And obviously we've heard of Nineveh. So I don't know how they're historians. Have you studied Nineveh before? I don't know. I hadn't. Um, I've heard of it because I read the Bible. So if all you know about Nineveh is what you read in the Bible, then you're only getting God's perspective of Nineveh. And I think getting another view kind of brings things home to me. Um, we do know it was founded by Nimrod all the way back in Genesis early. And Nimrod is another name that's not good. He was Noah's great-grandson. And uh, Jonah visited there around 760 B.C., so the first time. So Jonah doesn't paint a very good picture of Nineveh either. He didn't want to go. He'd rather die than see them get saved. That's pretty harsh. These people were evil. And uh, not understanding that, how, you know, as a Christian, we might say, how could anybody have that kind of heart? And this is somebody God picked to use for ministry, Jonah. And um, we know that God saw their works, and he sent warning. So he sends a preacher from Israel all the way to Nineveh to tell them to repent. And what was the message? Repent, or in three days you're all going to die. I think, is that in the gospel? I can't remember. <laughs> it's in there. It's not the whole gospel. 
it's part of it. You know, in order for the good news to be good, you have to understand that you're living in bad news. Um, and then God saw their repentance and sent salvation. So Jonah's like, I knew you were going to save them. That's why I didn't want to go, because he knew God's heart. And, and Jonah should be thankful that that's God's heart, because Jonah needed salvation. We all need salvation. So we, it's sometimes we think that we want it for us, but other people aren't deserving of it. Um, and again, we talked about it. I understand not wanting to go, but I don't understand how can you not want someone saved. I guess if you've had somebody harm your family, you might have a hard time forgiving. So we're all there. I can understand that on a little level. I could understand what God would tell me if he said, I want you to go to Afghanistan and preach the gospel. So I, wouldn't, I don't think I would be not wanting to go because I'd be afraid they'd get saved. I think I'd not want to go because I'm afraid they wouldn't get saved. And um, my funeral would be coming soon. More of a physical fear. Um, but that didn't seem to be Jonah's issue. And then uh, now we come to Nahum. This is about 100 years after Jonah had gone through. When Jonah went through, it might be, some speculate, probably the largest revival recorded in the Bible. The whole nation gets saved. Nineveh, it's a city. The whole city gets saved. It's huge. And 100 years later, and that's kind of the where I'm going tonight, and I'm not going to, next time I might finish the whole book, but I did an introduction, now I'm doing a talk, <laughs> next time I'll probably finish the book, but a hundred years, largest revival recorded, a large revival recorded, everybody gets saved. A hundred years later, God says, I gave you time and you're done, I'm finished with you. What happened in a hundred years? He says, I'm done with you. He actually says, I'm digging your grave. He's upset. So now, again, he sends a prophet, and he sent warning. And this time, there was no, there's no repentance, so there's no salvation. So God's been true to his word the whole time. And who are these people, and what makes God so upset? And if you were to just flip quickly to chapter 3, verse 1. Woe, and usually when there's a woe, it's not good, to the bloody city, it is all full of lies and robbery. Its victims, its, its victim never departs. You go there, you get a death sentence. He calls it a bloody city. And uh, we know that he says he's going to destroy it, which he did. He said it was going to be burned, and it was. He said there would be no remnants there. And it wasn't until recently that they actually, well, fairly recently, according to historical stuff, the archaeologists actually found it, had unburied it, and found things in it, and saw things. And uh, so they didn't, they didn't only, not only were the rulers cruel, but they boasted of their cruelty. In fact, when they dug up things, they found monuments, and they found a lot of these pillars, which we'll also be reading about in a second. But some of these... Um, quoted by Boyce, a Bible commentary, um, has some of the quotes that are on these pillars. One of them is, I cut off their heads and formed them into pillars. They decapitated people and made statues out of them. Another one says, Bubo, son of Buba, I flayed in the city of Arbella and I spread his skin upon the city wall. So he actually made, he skinned the person alive. I mean, we 
cowboys and Indians, right? They took scalps off. These guys took the whole body, flayed the whole person. Another one said, I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. So not only did they kill them, but they filleted them. Not only did they fillet them, they displayed them. They were, God is like, and we would think, I can't believe it, that's horrible. What kind of people are these? Many within the border of my own land, I flayed and spread their skins upon the walls. And others says, I cut off the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who had rebelled, Another one says, 3,000 captives I burned with fire. The people in Nineveh, the rulers of Nineveh. Three more, their corpses I formed into pillars. Another one, from some I cut off their heads and their fingers, and from others I cut off pieces of their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. And another, I made one pillar of the living, and another of heads. I bound their heads to posts around the city. So it made a statement, and we read of biblical times of people coming in and leaving piles outside. The Babylonians um, were cruel. It seems hard to compare and match that to the Ninevites. They were a cruel, hard people. And if that's how we're reading it, that's how we see it, and that's how God views it. And uh, in a second, we're going to read some secular history on them. Um, the last time we got into Isaiah 10, and uh, we talked about the difference between discipline and destruction. So if you're a child of God, he'll allow difficulty into your life because he's going to discipline you. But if you're not in Christ, then God, you will be destroyed. Um, and we, we read that. God used people, to, he used ungodly people, he used the Ninevites to chasten his people and he used that as a means of correction because he loved his people and he used it for good. But the people that he used, the Ninevites, heart was wrong in it and they weren't saved. And God then told them, now I'm going to judge you for what you did to my people because you did it with the wrong motive. And you can read Isaiah 10 and it goes through that. So just because you're doing something and you think you're being led of the Lord doesn't mean that your heart's right in it and that you're getting credit for it. You need to know what God's will is and to walk in it. And then we read uh, the beginning of Nahum, and uh, 60-ish years after Jonah, 35 years prior to Nahum, Sennacherib sent the Rabshikah, which is the title of a chief, to Hezekiah, and then we read all of Isaiah 36 and 37, and that's in a a couple, it's in Chronicles 2. You can read that account of Sennacherib sending the Rabshikah, and he's basically tells you the story where they're at at that time, saying, don't trust the Lord, your God. He's, all the other gods couldn't protect you. What makes you think your God's going to protect you? Isn't our God just as strong as him? And then he ended up going back, and he died from his sons at a temple. He's an idol worshiper. So we see that less than 65 years-ish after this huge revival, they're idol worshiping. Where's the remnant? The whole city is going to get destroyed. We hear the name Nineveh, we think of violent, we think of idol worshipers, we think of godless people, and we think of Jonah. Um, So the Jews were in a bad place too, many times. So we don't think of that when we think of them because, because of God. He corrected them. 
Um, I found an article, it's a little lengthy, I'm only gonna read the highlights of it, but I think it's relevant because we, we need to understand uh, our, how are we different, our nation? What does God look at when he sees it? I just reminded of when Samuel was coming, looking for the next king, and he said, no, no, no. And he said, you know, God, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. God looks upon the heart. So what does a heart look like? Obviously, if you're an idol worshiper, it looks different. If you're a glutton, it looks different. He sees something of you when he looks at you. And it's kind of funny how we can always look at ourselves in a different light, and other people's sin looks worse. But how many people did the Ninevites kill? And I just wonder how many people, how many babies, what, what does God look at when he sees our nation? So this is from a secular... Obviously, I don't agree with much of, well, I'll read it because it tells you about their, their version of the Bible. And they even mention Nahum, and they say, obviously, he wrote it after it happened because there's no way anybody could know what was going to happen beforehand, <laughs> just like they said about Daniel um, until the Dead Sea Scrolls showed up. But article from World History Encyclopedia, Nineveh, modern-day Mosul in Iraq, was one of the oldest and greatest cities in antiquity. It was originally known as Ninua, a trade center, and would become one of the largest and most affluent cities in antiquity. It was regarded highly by ancient writers other than those who created the biblical narratives which cast it in a negative light. The area was settled as early as 6,000 B.C. and by 3,000 B.C. had become an important religious center for the worship of the goddess Ishtar. The meaning of the name is disputed, but most likely relates to the prefix nin or ninya, which often appears in the names of deities and could have meant house of goddess or specifically the house of Ishtar as the city was associated with that goddess from an early date. It came under Assyrian rule during the reign of Shamashi Adad, but was most fully developed during the Neo-Assyrian Empire by Sennacherib, among the most famous Assyrian kings and closely associated with the city as he made it the capital of Neo-Assyrian Empire. Modern scholars also believe that he may have built the hanging gardens at Nineveh that were later credited to Babylon. Nineveh is mentioned in the Bible, but most notably in the book of Jonah, where it is associated with sin and vice. Prior to its fall, however, Nineveh was the largest urban city in the center in the world. So here at this time when Nahum is preaching, it was associated as the largest urban center in the world. It was ornamented by gardens. It had statuaries, parks, and a zoo, and was regarded as a cultural center. The center was destroyed in 612 BC by a coalition led by Babylonians, Medes, which toppled the Assyrian Empire. The Neo-Assyrian Empire, so it goes on and talks about a beginning of it, but I, we don't need to read all that. The Neo-Assyrian Empire, the last phase of the Assyrian rule in the region, is the most famous of the Assyrian kingdoms, and Nineveh reached its height under its reign of kings. The city grew dramatically in size, grandeur, and fame under the reign of King Sennacherib, who made Nineveh his capital. Sennacherib was the son of King Sargon II, who built his own capital but he ended up dying and moving it on. He built great walls around the city, 
with 15 gates created public parks and gardens, aqueducts, irrigation ditches, canals, a zoo, and greatly expanded upon the improved structures of the city. His palace had 80 rooms and he proclaimed it the palace without rival. And uh, make, it mentioned earlier about the hanging gardens. Um, he also quotes from Christopher Scar, who is a, an archeologist. It said, Sennacherib's palace had the usual accoutrements out of, of a major Assyrian residence, colossal guardian figures and impressively carved stone reliefs, over 2000 sculptured slabs in 71 rooms. Its gardens too were exceptional. Recent research by British Assyriologist Stefan Daly has suggested that these were the famous hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Later writers placed the hanging gardens at Babylon, but extensive research has failed to find any trace of them. Sennacherib's proud account of the palace gardens he created at Nineveh fits that of the hanging gardens in several significant details. And he goes on, but this is what they say of the biblical account of Nineveh. In 627 CE, the area was the site of the Battle of Nineveh, the decisive Byzantine victory in the byzantine Sassanid War. This engagement brought the region under Byzantine control until the Muslim conquest of 637. While other great cities of ancient Mesopotamia were recognizable from their ruins, of Nineveh there was not a trace, which is kind of funny because God said, I'm not going to leave a trace. <laughs> so they're actually here about to slam the Bible and they're actually confirming everything that it said. Um, the city was best known through the Christian era and still is by the central role it plays in the biblical book of Jonah. It was written, they say, 500 to 400, depicting events 400 years of years earlier in the reign of the Hebrew king Jeroboam II. While in the book of Jonah, the city's spared the wrath of God. Other references to Nineveh in the Bible, and then it mentions Nahum and Zephaniah, uh, predict the destruction of the city by God's will. And then it goes on, it is certain, it is certain, so they know this, however, that these were written after the fact because the city had already fallen and the prediction is therefore simply reworked history. It's kind of funny how they can call something a fact when they want to. They have no reason to know that. They paint it in a different light. So here are these vile, vulgar, horrid people. They do brutal things, yet they were one of the most culturally relevant places in the world at the time. They're not the barbarians that we think. The evil people can actually be civilized. And if you don't believe that, go to Washington, D.C., go to New York City. There, there's these sex slave operations caught with these really ultimate rich people in our country. And it's like just because they're civilized doesn't mean they're not evil. And I think sometimes we want to read about Nineveh and put them in a different category because it makes us feel better about who we are. But how does God view us? I know how God views me. He sees his son. We've killed a lot of babies in the name of the God of sex in this country. And uh, we need to pray for our country. I, I, I know we're prideful of where we've come from and its roots, um, but I don't know if God is, sees us the same way as we want to see ourselves. Um, we think with that in mind, I think of Daniel, right? Richard going through the book of Daniel, and Nebuchadnezzar saw 
a vision and what did he see? This figure with metal and statues and gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. And then God reveals, of course, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue of gold because he's the head of gold, so he wants the whole thing of him. It's all of the next leaders, but when God reveals this vision of these same eras, he, to Daniel, he reveals them as beasts. He looks at things differently than we look at things. So what, what happened to Nineveh after the revival? And that's the question I'm posing, and it's all speculation. The Bible doesn't tell us, other than it tells us it didn't do good. So how, how was, if you, so let's think of it as you. If you get saved, how are you supposed to go on? Let's think of it, kids. We're about to start a school. So if you have a child, and there they are, how, do, how are they going to know God? Will it just come naturally? How are they going to learn anything? How are they going to learn to tie their shoes? You need to teach children. You need to raise children. How do you make a Christian? You need to teach Christianity, and you need to disciple them. And that's going to be the whole message. We'll end up in Acts, but this needs to be moved along. So how did God set it up? So it's easy to sit there and, and judge, but with the going through all of this, I'm going to kind of go through what God set up in order to carry on the tradition of Judaism, the Christian Judaic Christian values and the religion. But think about Nineveh. They had a guy come in and preach, and they believed. And what did he do? I don't know. I think he left. He went up on a mountain and said, see ya. So how did they learn? What did they know? Who was there to minister to them? They, they fell pretty quick. And, and, and if you're thinking, you know, I don't, I, I've heard people, you see people out in the street, I'm a believer too. I'm like, good, where do you go to church? Well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Okay, well, that says a lot. And that's true. <laughs> It, it, just because you don't go to church means you're not a Christian. Um, but then God challenged me to challenge them. Um, you don't have to go to church if you're a Christian. But the question is, is why don't you want to go to church? There's something wrong. You know, he says, he, first of all, he tells us to go to church. So you should go to church. If he's Lord, then you should do what he says. And he says, I want you to go. He says, you need each other. Everyone has gifts. No one has, everyone else has things you're missing. If you want to fully know God, you need each other. So as you come together, you're actually completing something. So, and if you think if you're, and if that's true, which it is, and you're only one part, you're missing more than you have. We need each other. But other people need what you have too. So we're all needed. No one's insignificant. Um, but we're, he created us to be needy. He wants us the, by, you know, by the love that you have, the world will know you're my disciples. So the next question is, is, do you love the brethren? If you're not going to church, how can you claim to love the brethren? And if you do love the brethren, then the question isn't, do I have to go to church? The question should be, is why don't you want to go to church? There's something not healthy. If you don't want to go to church, there's something not healthy with you. So God has set up things um, to go through this, and, and we need each other. And the first thing I thought of is Leviticus 23. If you want to flip there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, it's probably your second favorite book behind Nahum. <laughs> At least you probably know where Leviticus is. 
So by God's design, um, having Moses pass on what God had spoken to him, um, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. So there's feasts we're going to go through. There's a few of them. We're not going to go through them all. This is just an example of what he had set up to do. A holy convocation. What is a holy convocation? Or a holy day, a holiday. Right? And the Lord challenged me in this too. So well, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. So there's specific holidays that I want you to be faithful to celebrate every year on a specific time. Verse 5, on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And the Lord said to Moses, Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the first day. So we're going to read, as you read through this, there's three holidays that you were required to go to Israel to the temple and to celebrate. Why? Because they all represent something. It's physical, it affects your life, and it, it's teaching. All these are teaching moments. We know that all of these are prophetic. All of these things point to Jesus. Jesus said every single thing written in the Old Testament is written of me, and he goes, it's not enough that I want you to just have a day, but I want it to be memorable, I want it to cost you something, and I want it to teach you something, and I want it to remain. And he actually goes on to say that even uh, the Passover specifically, he goes, no matter where you go, for all generations, you're going to celebrate that. And I grew up in Brighton, and most of, over half of my class was Jewish, and very few of them were religious. Every one of them celebrated the Passover. I don't even know if they knew why. God kept it true. He's, he's teaching them something. I want you to remember. And uh, flip over to Deuteronomy, another well-known verse. Deuteronomy chapter 6. So God says, I didn't want to just do something for you, proclaim salvation, and then hope that you get it. I gave you feasts because I want it in your face. I want it passed on from generation to generation, and I want this, I don't want it to go away in 65 years like it did in Nineveh. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. 
that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Verse 3, Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand in everything that you do, and they shall be as the frontlets between your eyes as you think. You shall write them upon the doorpost of your house and on your gates. He's like, I want this to be something that you teach your kids to your grandkids every day, everywhere that you go. It's important. I don't want it to leave you. Deuteronomy. Genesis, flip over to Judges chapter 2. So that's the goal, that's the purpose. The law is important, the word of God is important. Uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 1. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bacham and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He said, I will never break my covenant with you. God will never give up on Israel. It's the only, it's the only nation he's ever made that promise to. We don't have that hope. We have that hope as Christians. He said that to individuals. But the only nation that he's ever said that to was Israel. Verse 2, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Verse 7, so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So while Joshua was alive, they served the Lord. In all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had been had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. And I bet you they served the Lord in Nineveh all the days when the, whole, when the king called for a fast and they all got saved. It says in verse 8, Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnaharaz in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gash. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, so everyone that was alive when that happened, and another generation, so this is just one generation away, 
from Joshua, arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So even Israel, one generation away, and I mentioned that last time too, God designed it that way. We're always one generation. God doesn't have grandkids. My kids aren't saved because I was saved. My kids need to be saved. Everyone needs to have the Lord as their God. And we're always, the church is always one generation away unless we teach our children, unless we go out and witness to this lost world. You think there could have been a better way? God leaves it up to, <laughs> but he's really smart. So he, he knows what he's doing. Verse 12, and they forsook the Lord, God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroths, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said, he warned them through Joshua, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed, 16, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which the fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. So we see that all, we are all like people of like men, and we all struggle with the same things, and we're all prone to idol worshipers. It's just that we believe that we're more civilized. We don't do the things or call them that God. We uh, hide it better, per se. Yet, how does God view us? We're getting there. Psalm 33. And again, people born in Nineveh, what do they know? They only knew what they knew. And if that's true about people, and we're in this country, we know that we can go that way quickly. What should our response be? 
Psalm 33, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a harp. Make melody to him with instruments of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Thank you, by the way, Aubrey. Where we're going. <laughs> My wife even said, because I told her kind of where I was going tonight, she's like, every one of those songs fit. <laughs> so that was totally the Lord. Um, for, verse 4, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And obviously verse 12 is what brought me here. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his own, as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the places of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their heart individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength, which he proved to the Ninevites. They were the most feared, vicious War, worrying nation around, but they are absolutely no match for God. 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. So we don't have great confidence in peace because we happen to be in the best military nation in the world, although we may be and we definitely once were. Um, but we know that we can fall just as fast as anyone else can. Um, we are no match for God. It's every generation's responsibility and privilege to pass the gospel on to the next generation. You can only give out what you first received. I can't give you mumps if I don't have mumps, nor do you want mumps. <laughs> I can only take you as far as I can. I remember Pastor Jeff saying that all the time. A, a disciple can only be as knowledgeable or to the level of the one that's discipling them. So we, that's why we want to make disciples of Jesus. We want to bring people to him. He can take them as far as they're willing to go, but I can't pass on what I don't have. So for other people's sake, how important is it that we know and that we tell them? What do we know? And uh, all of that came, Acts 18. Now we're finally getting to where I wanted to get to. <laughs> Acts 18. So how do we pass on 
this? What do we do as our part? And we know we come across this. I'm going to probably read all 18 in the beginning and 19. Um, and if there's still time left, I have a whole bunch more, but I think that might be as far as we get. So Paul's on his second missionary tour. Uh, we were here not too long ago with Pastor Dave, and uh, he's going across it. But just a couple things to look at specifically as we go read some of this is uh, people ministering one to another. And, and where do they take them? And what do they have? And how does God view what they have and what they're doing? So Paul's traveling through, and his goal isn't to stop and set up churches. We know he's already started and planted churches. Um, he's set up elders and people to be there. And now he's just going through, checking on them to make sure that they're okay. Who did that to Nineveh? Who came by? I don't know. Anybody? Maybe they did and no one received them. It doesn't tell us. But Paul wasn't content just in going there, preaching the gospel like Jonah and taking off and saying, see ya. He had a heart for people. It's not enough to just tell your kids the gospel. You need to train them up. You need to tell them, as it says in Deuteronomy, in the morning, in the afternoon, at nighttime, all the day, every time you go, when you have festivals, you have to explain it to them. If you have a feast, if you have a holy day, a holiday, and they say, why, why are you celebrating Christmas? Well, you can tell them. And uh, on the other side, if you're celebrating something that you shouldn't be celebrating and they ask you, why are we doing this? Then you can tell them the honest answer probably is, well, all the other parents are celebrating and I just, that's what we do in this country. <laughs> to which then they would probably say, well, if all the other parents jump off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? <laughs> so you, yeah, what are we doing? So Acts 18, after these things, and again, Paul's just traveling through, uh, he just got out of, Athens, the Archippus, the same place where Socrates was stoned, uh, preached. Um, he departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Verse 2, and he found a certain Jew. So he just happened to come across somebody. Is there such a thing as coincidence? What does Paul do when he comes across somebody? Named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Paul's traveling through, comes across somebody, finds out he's Jewish, finds out he makes tents, and he says, let's hang out. What does that look like? Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greece. Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So now he just happens to bump into somebody else. And what's the first thing he does is he takes them to the temple, to the synagogue. Obviously, temples where they worship. And they're not in Jerusalem. Verse 8, then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. So Paul's going around preaching. He preaches the gospel in the synagogue. He preaches the gospel 
to the, to the Gentiles. He preaches the gospel to people that he meets. He's always looking for somebody to take under his wing and disciple and to teach them things. So the Christmas, verse 8, the ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. So why would God tell him that? He must have been afraid to speak. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And sometimes we think, oh, if I say that, you know, somebody's going to attack me. But for Paul, who had been stoned, <laughs> this was a real threat. It was something that he lived with. It was something that God told him would happen to every city that he went into the moment he got saved on the road to Damascus. Um, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city, verse 11. And he continued there a year and six months doing what? Teaching the word of God among them. How important is the word of God to God? And how important is the word of God to, to, should it be to us? How important was it to Paul? Every conversation that you have, if you have a disagreement with somebody, if you have different theological position from somebody, if you think, if, if you just come up to somebody and they say, I can't, you can't believe you're doing that, that's wrong. I can't believe you treat somebody like that, it's wrong. You hurt their feelings. Well, define right and wrong. If, you, if it's wrong, what did you wrong? You had to wrong a standard. Where's the standard? Every conversation is going to come back if you're a Christian and you're defending a position. The position is going to be from the Bible or you shouldn't be defending it. If you have, if you have an opinion, it's because you agree with God and he gave you his mind. And, if, and I, you know, again, I've said this multiple times. I had coworkers that were more righteous than other coworkers. And they're like, why can't everybody just do good? And I'm like, the problem is you and I can't even agree on what is good. You're going to tell somebody that living in their sin to feel better about themselves. I'm going to tell them to repent. I don't think allowing somebody to do something that's harming them is good for them. It might make them feel not as guilty, but that's not... Guilt, when you, when you have a conscience that's telling you something is wrong, you should feel guilty. The, the right answer isn't to stop feeling bad. The right answer is to repent and come to Jesus. And he, So he, he sat there teaching the word of God. And if you're going to defend a position, I think oh, sometimes we're too afraid to talk because we don't know the word of God. I, oh, I don't know the word of God well enough. Well, first of all, you don't have to give out. You don't have to know everything in order to give it out. We're going to get to that in here in a couple of verses, which is my point. But then other th reason is, is why don't you know it good enough? Read. What is more important than the salvation of people? And if you're unfamiliarity with the scriptures is the thing keeping you from preaching, then get familiar with the scriptures. And quite frankly, I remember, again, just started coming here, just, maybe, been coming here four months, just got saved, hungry, read every morning, came to church three times a week, four times a week, Listen to the radio all the time, and Pastor Jeff said, if you've been coming here for six months, you probably know more than most pastors in the pulpit in the city, unfortunately. It doesn't take much to know enough. Verse 12, when 
Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, this is in the city where God says, Don't worry about it, I got you covered, don't be scared. He said, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or, or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. Verse 15, but if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them, the Jews that were accusing Paul, from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Uh, Paul, where's Grace? <laughs> Maybe he tried to stop him, I don't know. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Verse 18, so Paul still remained a good, t a good while. So here he is on a tour, spending quite a bit of time here. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So he had spent time with them earlier, discipling them. Now he takes them with him. He had cut his, cut his, and his hair cut off at Centuria, for he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus. So this is a tour coming back through a place he had already planted a church. There's going to be believers there, probably many believers there already. He wants to know their state and to encourage them. And he came to Ephesus, verse 19, and he left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means... Keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he had gone up, greeted the church. He went down to Antioch after he had spent some time there, and he departed and went over to the region of Galatia, Phrygia, in order, strengthening all the disciples. So we just see here Paul ending uh, his second missionary and his third one starts kind of without notice. But verse 24, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born of Alexandria. So Alexandria was the cultural center now of this time, highly educated. Its library is renowned. Um, highly educated, smart guy, well looked upon. You know, I can't think of anything to match that maybe, except this guy went to Harvard or something. And uh, it says he was an eloquent man a good talker, mighty in the scriptures, so he knew the word of God well. And just in these next few verses, look at how God speaks of what he does. Now, again, verse 24, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. Uh, verse 25, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, he'd been discipled, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. So this guy only had received so much, and what he had been given, he went out and gave. He's out there fervently giving everything that he had received, even though he knew only the baptism of John. We'll find out a little bit more about what that means in a couple of verses here. But here's a guy going out, not teaching how we would think it should be taught, 
but God does not judge him for it. He's only give, he only knew what he knew, and he gave out what he knew, and God commends him for it. Verse 26, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Aquila and Priscilla heard him. So here's this eloquent, highly educated, smart guy being bold, and this tent maker that spent time with Paul comes up to him. And Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They're like, so one thing is, is he was out trying to make disciples, but he wasn't above being discipled. He could receive correction. And if you want to be used by God, you need to be able to receive from God. We're never all there. We all should be discipling, and we all need to be discipled. There was a better way his information wasn't fulfilled accurately. 27, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. So they spoke highly of him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So here's a guy. He only knew what he knew. He was still being used. He was teachable, and he was used greater. Chapter 19, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, and again, Apollos is now teaching differently because he learned better. And we know the Corinthians had a problem, right? If you read the book of Corinthians, you know, they were divided because they had little groups and cults. And, you know, he even said that some are of Apollos, some are of Paul. Some say I am of, so Apollos was well known in Corinth. So Apollos had gone to Corinth, that Paul passing through the upper regions came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. So Apollos leaves Ephesus to go to Corinth, and then Paul shows up at Ephesus where Apollos was. And these disciples we're going to find out were probably the same one that Apollos had been ministering to. So now we're going to see the effects of Apollos' ministry. And this is people that were taught by Apollos that God highly commended for he giving out what he could, what he knew. So Paul comes, finds them, and it doesn't say why, but verse 2, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Something about these people said to Paul said, you're lacking something. And we know that Aquila and Priscilla heard Apollos' teaching and said, you were lacking something in your teaching. So these people were lacking what Apollos wasn't giving in their teaching, but you don't have to worry about it because God knew that he was going to bring Paul to him, and Paul's going to fill in the gaps. It's a growth period. Nobody learns to run. You've got to learn how to stand and then to walk. And they, and they honest as Apollos was, willing to, re, to receive, said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And being saved any length of time, then you're wondering, what was Apollos teaching then? How could you, not, how could you be teaching Christianity and somebody hearing you but I guess the Lord kind of convicted me on that too. Have you ever witnessed to somebody preach the gospel? If you read Acts 15, if you go through it and you know what the gospel is, you know, you're preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I guess it's not that. I, I, if I've spent a day talking to somebody 
that needed to get saved and discussing with them. Somebody might walk up to them later and be like, the Holy Spirit, isn't that like a force? They, might, they probably wouldn't have a complete understanding of the Holy Spirit either. Verse 3, and he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. And I find that convicting <laughs> to me. So if, if you have somebody that says that they're not fully aware of the Holy Spirit, Paul's response is, what were you baptized into then? I find that an odd question. Instead of just saying, teaching on the Holy Spirit, he said there's something about being baptized into something that should make you aware of it. So even going through the process of baptizing somebody, which they did commonly right after salvation, they believed the gospel, and what prevents me from getting baptized? So they were saved already. It wasn't required. But they understood they were going into something and a lot of it, I think, is not the process of getting wet. It's the process of what that represents. You're, I'm dying. If you're dying, you're becoming alive. You become alive because the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. And when you're submersed into him, I'm, I've given him my life. He said, what were you baptized into? And he said, into John's baptism. So they didn't say, what are you talking about? They were baptized into something, and they understood it. It was important, and they figured it out. Then verse 4, Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized, and this can start a whole other weird doctrine. You can't baptize in the name of Jesus. You've got to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He just said they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you get Jesus, you get the whole package. Jesus says, if you, don't, if you have me, you have the Father too. If you don't have me, you don't have me or the Father. Jesus is enough. But the Holy Spirit comes because the blood of Christ cleanses us. Verse 6, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all, so we know this is not the whole church. Um, at Ephesus, there was probably a large church at Ephesus. He had just come across these 12 people, and Paul had no problem ministering and spending time with one person or two people or 12 people or a city of people rioting trying to kill him. He just said, Lord, whatever you want to do, use me. It's not about numbers. It's about what are you doing? Verse 8, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So they started a school, and they were in there teaching the things of the God. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greek. So they discipled one another, they had schools, they had spread, and they ministered, and it went across a, a, a nation, a continent. They just, and it, it moves, and that's God's um, plan for spreading the gospel. And it's, a, and it's individuals, and it's personal. And I think if you don't have that going on, it's, it only takes one generation. We see it in Nineveh, we saw it in Israel after Joshua, and things can just go downhill fast. So 
So just to finish real quick, you don't have to turn back there again, but in Nahum, it says the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, God is jealous, the Lord avenges, the Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, the, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. And I just want to finish on that because that should remind us of Isaiah 61. The Lord is good. He's slow to anger. But it says that uh, he will not acquit the wicked. And that's the part that Jesus left out in the Gospels when he walked in after he came out of the wilderness being tempted by the devil because his time to judge hadn't come yet. But his heart of ministry, read Isaiah 61, read the Gospels. His heart for ministry is to save, is to heal. He's slow to anger. He, he wants people to know him. And he wants to use us. And it's not only because we're the only means that he has. It's because we need to do it. It's healthy for us. If we're not doing that, then what are we doing? And if we believe it, we will. I'm just mindful of uh, he will not acquit the wicked. Um, but what do, we, what do we do with all this? Right? You know, we, we don't want to be forsaken. Um, but he was forsaken for us, Psalm 22. He took our punishment. He is the one that that wrath came out on. So God's wrath is there. He took it. And if you don't have faith that he took it for you, that means it's going to come out that you're going to have to get, receive it. And that's why we love Jesus so much. He took all of that for us. He's jealous for us. He loves us. Jesus loves you, and he's coming back soon. And... Uh, I don't know, to Second Peter 3, we're out of time. But if you want to know where are we at, what does the world look like, and what does God want us to do, I think Nahum is a good wake-up call. I don't think our nation's doing as well as the Lord would like it. Um, it's hard to say that, you know, we call him God. There are many of us that do, and if you do, then you're safe, and it doesn't matter, and he has many in the city you know, just as he told Paul. But, um, Father, we just thank you that you're a good God. We don't know where this country is headed, but you do. We know where we're headed, and we know where you want everyone to be headed. Um, we know that you desire and love people, and uh, you rejoice over the salvation of any lost soul, and you want to use us in this process somehow, Lord. So we just pray that we would have eyes to see what you're doing, We'd be more open to what your spirit is leading us to. We don't want to be, we have heard that there is even a Holy Spirit, Lord. We don't have an excuse for that, Lord. You said if we just pray and ask, how much more would the Father give us the Holy Spirit? It's your desire that we have him and be filled with him. Lord, we know that he's in us because we're saved and you've shed your love or brought in our hearts, Lord. But we want to be used by you. We want to be equipped by you. So we know with we leak, and you just say, just to ask, Lord, so burden our hearts every day to ask that you would fill us, that we would be aware of the opportunities that you're creating for us, 
uh, to share your love with people, to teach our children, Lord, not just to get through the day, um, but to teach them throughout the day, to teach our neighbors about you as we go, to tell people why we celebrate Christian holidays because of your goodness, all these things that you've designed for your word to go forth, for us to be encouraged, for people to know you, for generations not to fall, for your word to go forth. We just pray that you would allow us to take advantage of those and uh, we just ask for help because you're a good God and you're slow to anger and you love us. So have your way in Jesus' name, amen.